there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. Hope you're having a great week. If you're interested in journalism, but the idea of covering fires or murders or one of the more traditional reporting beats like local or national government or the Justice Department or even foreign policy, then you are definitely going to want to stay tuned because my next guest carved out his own beat almost a decade ago after years of reporting on more conventional types of news. But before I introduce you to Bruce Kennedy, I want to make sure you have signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time the number 4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my motivated macchiato and more traditional tea tipplers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Bruce Kennedy, a Colorado-based journalist and communication specialist who's been covering the legal cannabis industry since 2010. He's also worked at CNN, where he and I know one another from, at NPR and at Reuters TV in local and international news, and has reported on cannabis issues for Leafly, The Cannabis, The Guardian, and Dope Magazine, where he actually has a big feature spread in the April 2019 issue about the uphill struggle for medical cannabis in the U.S. Bruce, Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated on your green tea and ready to go? <laughs> it's actually ginger tea because I have a sore throat and I threw a little CBD in, but I'm certainly ready. Let's do it. Oh, I am so sorry. And I love ginger tea too. So I, I hope you feel better. Thank you, ma'am. So Bruce, I have a confession to make. I almost started this interview by asking you if you were stoned and ready to go because that would have made for an even more entertaining interview, don't you think? <laughs> well, it's unfortunately one of the stereotypes you have to deal with in this industry. Everybody thinks that you're a stoner, that you're sitting around listening to Bob Marley, that your room is just full of haze. And quite honestly, this is, as you know, a beat much like anything else, but even more so because you have to cover all aspects of a very new industry that has been in the shadows, an outlaw industry for over 80 years. You are dealing with people who are very dedicated to what they are working on, but at the same time, very suspicious and territorial and trying to pry that information out of people requires you to be quite awake and sober. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, I know, and Java junkies are going to get to hear for themselves the extent to which you are truly an expert in this industry. And we are going to talk about all of that in just a minute. But I have to ask you, because I'm curious about this, what is the high like that you get from marijuana these days in the sense that how different it is from the way it was when you and I were kids. Can you really <laughs> customize the kind of buzz you get and the high you get? Oh, you make me feel so old, Andrea. No, it's it's a very different industry now. I'm not going to say how old I am, but I have been familiar with cannabis, shall we say, for several decades now. And 
in the ensuing years, you've had the agriculture and chemists and bio majors have gotten involved and they have been able, like you have with any other agricultural crop, to crossbreed and work on the genetics and really kind of push up the volume. The challenge right now is that back in the 70s, the THC, the tetrahydrocannabinol level of cannabis, THC being the cannabinoid that gets people high, was about 5 to 7%. Right now, I can take you to any dispensary in any cannabis legal state and you will find easily THC levels anywhere from 15 to 25% and higher. So if you were coming back to cannabis after not sampling it in a while, my biggest advice is take your time, start small, because it, it's really kind of the difference between having a beer and going to a 100 proof vodka. It's it's a very different high than it was. So have you ever written about the different highs from sampling them? I mean, have you gotten to cover that kind of story? I'm not a cannabis reviewer. I am trying, you know, my background is in journalism. I have asthma, so I don't smoke. If I consume cannabis, it's usually as an edible or as a sublingual tincture. You could basically put it in a dropper. And the difference with that is that if you're eating it is that you have to wait a moment. I actually wrote a long story for Leafly about cannabis overconsumption. They don't call it overdose because no one has ever died from a cannabis overdose, but they can get certainly very unhappy. And the big problem that people seem to have, especially tourists, because a great deal of the ER visits for cannabis overconsumption come from tourists, is they'll take a bite or something out of a cannabis edible. They'll wait a half hour and going, nothing's happening. So they'll eat more. And guess what? You have this cumulative effect and then it hits you like a tsunami. And so suddenly Maureen Dowd from the New York Times was the famous example of that. She came out here and she ate what was actually the equivalent of like 10 joints worth of marijuana <laughs> oh and ended up in a Denver hotel room in fetal position waiting to die or the police to buy break in or whichever would come first. It's a very different thing right now. And you have to remember this is this is an intoxicant. I worked for a while in the wine industry and in liquor stores and all. And it's you have to realize that if you're going out to get high, you need to approach it carefully. The state of Colorado has a program called Good to Know that's available on websites and TV commercials and all. And that's a big part of it. It's kind of like, for God's sake, take your time because people don't realize how much this has changed and just how powerful a lot of these strains have become. Okay, that is great. We're done with our public service announcement. <laughs> now on to the really <laughs> important stuff. No, no, I opened up the door to all of that. That's really important. But I want to get into the work that you are doing now. And it's my understanding that you actually created your own beat almost a decade ago as a cannabis journalist. How did you go about doing that, Bruce? It was kind of out of necessity. I worked for public broadcasting. I was in a position with our mutual former employer where they laid off 500 people. I was one of them. In the town I was with, I couldn't find any work. And so I cast around and found a job here in Colorado. Unfortunately, it was in 2008 and literally months after I came out here and moved my family, my job went away with the recession. So I was suddenly found flat and I had to really improvise and scramble. Part of it was I ended up teaching journalism. I have no journalism degree, but I ended up teaching at three different universities in Metro Denver, teaching writing and editing and international media. But in order to make ends meet, I went back to my journalism roots, started to call friends in the industry and started to write first business news because I have that background, having worked Wall Street, etc. But then realized 
that no one was really covering the cannabis industry. And it was burgeoning all around us here in Colorado. So I started to cover the industry, get to know people. It's funny, I went to a, a huge hemp convention about two weeks ago, and I was on a first name basis with about a third of the people who were speaking because over the years, I've gotten to talk with them or I consult with them if I need some information or research. And so I've been very fortunate to kind of be at the ground level that way. But a lot of it was just purely necessity and, and fear, quite honestly, and also just seeing this great opportunity open before me. I think it just shows what an entrepreneurial mind you have. And honestly, I think that's one of the most important skills going beyond the ability to write and the ability to network that you need to be a good reporter because you have to find stories and you want to find interesting stories and important stories. And there you kind of stumbled on an incredibly important and growing beat. So kudos to you. Well, it's very kind of you to say. It's just, I think it's also just being able to put together stuff, not going with the usual, the usual storyline. I've been fortunate, like I said, in that I have background in a bunch of different things. I worked in communications for a while for the Cattlemen's Association. And that year working there made me very aware as a city boy, I was extremely unaware of what big ag requires here. And also just kind of the bad PR it has with people on the coast who are just not part of it. They all talk about factory farms and this and that, but it's like they're very dedicated people who are doing their best to put out the best quality produce they can. And and the same holds true for the most part with people in the cannabis industry and keeping aware of the fact that it is an agricultural product. So that's something I think a lot of people forget. They get too caught up in the whole cultural Cheech and Chong, Pineapple Express side of it. But it's, it's a business. And what's more, it's a crop. So, Bruce, was there any kind of a stigma that you experienced when you started or maybe even to this day that you still experience working on this beat? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> I, I still have I have friends. I'm from the New York area. I, I lived in New England and I have friends there who just snicker every time I talk about this. So what's changed is that Wall Street's paying attention and suddenly people realize this is money. And you're also getting stories about the medical side. There's a British company called GW Pharmaceuticals who last June got FDA approval the first time ever for a CBD extract called Epidiolex, which is the first FDA approved cannabis based pharmaceutical that's being used to treat seizures in some young children. And that's, that's a huge amount of legitimacy there. It creates also a lot of confusion because people are like, well, that means CBD is legal now. And it's like, well, yes and no. So you have to keep track of that. But I'm pointing is that even within the state here, where we're in Colorado, where cannabis has been legal all this time, there are a lot of issues. I've called some agricultural departments at universities here. And for the first several years, they refused to talk to me. They're like, we can't, we can't be involved with this. And now I have their communications people calling me with story ideas. So it's amazing how quickly it's changed. That is really interesting. Bruce, I want you to know that I spent quite a bit of time in preparing for our interview today reading some of the many, many stories you've written over the years on this beat, including stories about the cannabis wedding expo culture, the <laughs> efforts of That was some, fun. That was fun. It looked like it was fun. The efforts of some businessmen to open a credit union specifically yes. to support the legal cannabis industry. A story about the pot scientist who's a lab tech in Colorado, the history of pop music and cannabis, and on and on. And you've got 
a big spread in April's Dope magazine about the struggle for medical cannabis in the U.S., which continues to remain outside the healthcare mainstream, which frankly, is very different from the example in Canada and the way that the Canadians have approached it, which is only the second country in the world behind Uruguay to legalize it nationwide. For those Java junkies who are looking for a primer on the state of medical cannabis in the U.S., I highly, highly recommend reading Bruce's story in this month's Dope magazine. Do you have a favorite story, Bruce, that you've covered about cannabis in general? Yeah, maybe one that might surprise Java junkies. There are a couple. I'm proud of the one in the current issue of Dope Magazine. It's available online, but it's behind a subscriber paywall, so you have to get that. However, it's available at finer dispensaries everywhere on the West Coast in eight different states, and there are about a million copies out. So if you're in a cannabis legal state, do please do pick it up. It's about 14 pages long. It was several months in the making. I was able to interview a bunch of different people. And I think I broke some new ground just in terms of, of finding out the obstacles that Big Pharma is putting up for a lot of the research and development into medical cannabis, both the marijuana and the, the CBD side, part of it to protect their profit margins. And it's fascinating because this really is, it's not the magic bullet that some people make it out to be, but they're finding out that cannabis in general, if you check in like Israel, which is a start of the 1960s in terms of research and development on this, and the Canadians, there are a lot of very practical applications that cannabis can be used for. That article, the Dope Magazine article this month, puts a lot of things into perspective about the industry. So I'm proud of that. I think one of the more fun things I did was interviewing the, this is probably before your time, Andrea, there was a underground comics called the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. And it was a comic strip about three hippies who were constantly in search of the best high. And it was kind of one of these influential, fun things that came out of the cannabis culture from the 1960s. The author is a gentleman named Gilbert Shelton. He has become an expatriate. He lives in Paris and runs a sort of a high-end comic book art gallery. And I was able to interview him via email about his experiences. And it just happened. I didn't realize it was the 50th anniversary of him beginning to write about the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and writing about, like you were saying, the cannabis music. I was a jazz DJ in college. I've always had a love for jazz and very familiar with all these these different songs that reference cannabis. But I mean, for example, did you know that Louis Armstrong was like the first celebrity to get arrested for marijuana use in the 1930s? And he's he was a huge lifelong fan of the gauge, as he called it. And so with that story, I was able to to write about that, talk with jazz historians, but then have links to cannabis music that referenced cannabis. So there are a lot of things I'm happy to have done. It really is a multifaceted beat and a great deal of fun sometimes. It sounds like it. (laughs) So you have been a freelance reporter on and off for years now. What advice do you have, Bruce, for aspiring journalists and other young people who may already be in the journalism industry right now about how they can build a successful freelance portfolio that will help them pay the bills and do the kind of reporting that they enjoy? Wow, that's a loaded question. There are a lot of different things. I mean, I guess if you're just starting out, the first thing is don't be too proud. Go into a situation, especially if you're still learning to write, if you're still learning about the industry. And in a lot of ways, I I think about myself in my 20s when I started with British television. And the thing about British television, I had a wonderful bureau chief, an Australian gentleman named John Tello, 
who really was kind of my media rabbi. He kind of let me learn the ins and outs. That being said, I got put on the worst shifts and the longest hours. I was on weekend overnights for almost two years. I met my wife during that time and I realized that this must be a real thing because she stuck with me even though I was exhausted all the time. It's, well, it's true. But at the same time, I learned everything. I learned how to write, to copy edit, to be an assignment editor. There were satellite feeds I had learned to to transmit at the time, it really was a learning experience. And if you're going into a field like this, I think you have to kind of prostrate yourself, for lack of a better term, and say, look, I'm, I'm here to learn the industry. Obviously, I need to make a living wage, but I'll put up with some nonsense for a while as I learn. So that's a huge part of it. And then build your portfolio, as you said. Put some things together, get into writing. It's very funny. I look back on stuff that I wrote decades ago, and I'm like, my God, did I write that? The thing about journalism, as you know, Andrea, it's a learning experience as you go along. Your ear gets better, your writing gets better, your whole sort of sense of, of sensing people out gets better. It really is an apprenticeship in a lot of ways and, and one of the few, I think, that's left in, in modern industries. So you really kind of have to build your skills up. You can't just suddenly be an instant journalist. That is really great advice, Bruce. I want to just broaden the lens a little bit beyond journalism and ask you about what kind of jobs and employment opportunities are available today for young people in the legal cannabis industry. The sky is the limit in a lot of ways. This is an industry that has been illegal, <laughs> but existing for almost 80 years, if not more. And so it's, it's been very developed. The change now is that people are finally, you know, there, there's a parallel people talk about with gay marriage. People are kind of coming out of the closet about their cannabis use. It's losing a lot of its stigma, even though it still is kind of the butt of a lot of jokes, as we said. But there are a lot of professions available within the cannabis industry for people. For example, right now, there's a, a search on for attorneys who are familiar with cannabis law, which can be very, very specific state by state. Every state is reinventing the wheel when it comes to this because there's no federal oversight. But in cannabis legal states, they have very specific laws. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be aware of federal law. On the IT side, there are people who are being searched out to put together applications for seed to sale software, which is hugely important. The states are trying to keep all their cannabis stocks and supplies under tight control so as not to incur the wrath of the federal government. And part of this is watching literally how the cannabis develops from seed to sprout to flower to then being sold and manufactured and produced. So if you're good with the IT side, there's room for you there. There are people who they're looking for in security, in retail is a big thing right now. Human resources is becoming huge. The cannabis industry has been sort of rough and tumble for years. It was very male-oriented, and they're trying to change literally the cannabis culture in a lot of these places so that more women feel comfortable involved. There's also a huge amount compared to other industries in the United States. The percentage of female executives in the cannabis industry is unusually high. So if you have those office management skills, an MBA, that can certainly be applied. And there are lots of people who are taking those sort of built-in skills, the things they came out of college and life with, and turning it over and finding success in the cannabis sector. Fantastic. Okay, Bruce, before I pivot to your college days, I want to have oh a little bit of fun with you. Are you okay with that? Go for it. Okay. This is something I don't usually get to do with my T4C guests, but because you cover a really unique beat and obviously are gifted with words, I want to set the clock <laughs> to 30 seconds and oh, see how many different words, how many different synonyms you can come up with 
to describe cannabis. Okay, I'm starting the clock. Marijuana, cannabis, gauge, weed, lettuce, kush, chamfa, kefir, ganja. Lord, I've run out. <laughs> Kaya, that's another one. I, I am, I'm not as big a consumer as a lot of people, so I'm going to have to stop there. But there, there are about 700 more words that you can use to describe cannabis. It's amazing, all the different euphemisms that are out there. All right. Well, I uh, think I counted about 10 or 11. So kudos to you. 420. Let's not forget 420. That's, that's a classic. Oh, is it? I, see, I, I wouldn't have known that. All right, okay, Bruce, well. <laughs> let us flashback to when you were in college. You went to Bowdoin in Maine and you majored Mm -hmm. in Asian history. Is that right? Correct. Okay. When you graduated, did you have any idea what you were going to do with that degree? Not really. A little background. I, I grew up in New York City. I went to a parochial school and I was a fat boy in a tie and jacket. And I used to get mugged all the time in 1970s uh, Manhattan. And finally, when six girls with knives held me up, I went, I need to do something. So fortunately, my high school English teacher was also a fifth don in karate. And he had started a karate class. He was very traditional. He'd studied in Japan. I became very interested in both martial arts and Asian culture. So I was able to take that when I was in college and become an Asian history major, study the language, spent my junior year studying at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I knew basically that I was sort of fascinated with that part of the world, that I wanted to travel. And I was fortunate enough to sort of back into journalism several years after I graduated. I went back to Hong Kong and tried to find a way to stay there and went to the local Reuters Bureau and again, sort of prostrated myself and said, look, I'm, I'm new here, but I, I, I'm a good writer. I can do this. And explain to them what I wanted to do. They didn't think I was good enough to stay there. So I came back to New York and started to write for a bunch of little magazines just so I could, like you were saying, build up a portfolio. I wrote about international crafts, which I knew nothing about, but I knew how to write. So I was doing that. And through that little international crafts magazine, which was part of UNESCO, I wheedled an assignment for myself to go back to Japan and write about Japanese handmade paper. At the same time, I had been sending out resumes right, left, and center. And while I was in Los Angeles, this is back when you had to transfer for planes, I got a call from my mother saying, this news group from Britain just called. They want to talk to you about a job. And, you know, I was able to sort of say, well, I'm sorry, I'm on assignment right now (laughs) (laughs) and heading off to Tokyo. But could I talk to you when I get back? And they went, well, no worries. Being Australian, no worries. But you can talk to our Tokyo bureau chief when you get there. So I basically interviewed for the New York job in Tokyo. But by the time I got back, the job was gone. And the bureau chief, who was this great Australian named John Tello, who I owe a lot to, he was very impressed with my enthusiasm and my willingness to take the cruddy jobs. And he goes, we have weekend overnights and overnights open for you. So I started at the bottom, but I learned an incredible amount. I was really kind of alone a lot of times in this newsroom in Rockefeller Center when major news broke and suddenly I'm only North American contact. So I got used to sort of the whole crisis atmosphere that that happens in broadcast news. And it was just an incredibly valuable five years. And it really was kind of like getting an advanced degree in journalism for me, learning that way. So I don't know Fantastic. if I answered your question. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, Bruce, I have two final time for coffee questions. And I try to ask all of my guests to share a time in their professional life when they struggled. We've all had those downs 
and hopefully more of the ups. But in my case, I was let go. I was fired by CNN in 2007 when my contract was up. I've had other difficult experiences. Can you share a time, maybe it was a terrible boss or challenging colleagues that you experienced, and most importantly, how you recovered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? I guess the easiest way to look at this is I've been laid off numerous times in comparison. It started with CNN for me in 2001 when they had the AOL Time Warner merger. I don't know if you mind me going into specifics like that, but it was one of several hundred journalists laid off then. In the interim, I probably, I'd say over the past 20 years, I've been laid off seven or eight times, usually due to business model changes and sort of the evolution of journalism right now. And it's been difficult. It's been really difficult, especially as a family man and someone who's trying to support their family. My wife works and I'm, I'm thankful for her job, but it's hard. It takes a lot out of your ego. It, it can be very depressing. Sometimes those layoffs would be purely business. Sometimes they'd be coupled with office politics or personality issues, but you really begin to doubt yourself and your abilities. And you constantly have to kind of reinvent yourself and pick yourself up. I've always tried to sort of do my best at work and maintain myself professionally, keep a sense of journalistic ethics, not cut corners with stuff. Sometimes that leads to some really exhausting work or, or sometimes it's just sort of like chasing things into dead ends. But it really is a matter of staying professional, reinventing yourself. I mean, I learned radio after CNN. I mean, I'd done radio in college and all, but I basically was sort of brought in to an NPR station and became the news director because they needed a local news presence. And I won't say I bluffed my way in, but I was able to take sort of what I had learned from my writing time at, at CNN, where I was a senior copy editor, especially where you had half hour and hourly deadlines and, and turn things around, polish up my broadcast skills, but also learning to be a manager. I suddenly found myself in charge of eight to 12 reporters, depending on whether they're freelance or staff. And dealing with all that stuff, things like sick days and vacation relief and family arguments and all that. So you end up having to be sort of a counselor as well. It really is kind of being, I won't say a chameleon, but just being as flexible as you can be. And also just realizing what happens to you is, is just the way life is. I have, pardon me if I give a little aphorism here, I have a, a statement, a guy named Jigoro Kano, who's the father of modern judo, that someone pointed out to me. And he has this little thing. It says, do not let victory enthrall you. Do not let defeat defeat you. When it's safe, don't be careless. When it's dangerous, don't be afraid. Above all, move forward on your path to the end. And in order to defeat the enemy without, you must defeat the enemy within. And there are times lately when things get dire and I look at that, I'm like, yeah, that's right. Do not let the defeat defeat you. Keep pushing. So, yeah, there have been, there've been some really dark times, but you just have to keep at it. Oh, gosh. Thank you for sharing that, Bruce. And I think sure. that is so wise and such practical advice. It's like sometimes we can be our own worst enemy and you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other because everyone has ups and downs. Everyone does, both professionally and personally. And one of the more important qualities you can develop is grit and just suck it up and keep putting one foot in front of the other. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to Bowdoin and do it all over again, based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I probably would have been more open-minded to business, to international business. I think that there's a lot of that. You know, everything 
to a certain extent boils down to business. Even the cultural side, even music, it, all of it has a business aspect to it. So I probably would have paid more attention. I had to learn economics and all the hard way at work, which was very terrifying. I, I ended up covering Wall Street for a while and had to literally like study at night just to get caught up on what people were talking about. So I do think that as annoying as it can be and as boring it can be, I think economics and business are a huge, huge factor in almost everything that we do professionally. Absolutely. And and frankly, in my interview with Dr. Janet Yellen, the first woman chair of the Federal Reserve, what she was saying about economics, because my memory of taking economics in college was just what you said, that it was boring. And I told her, I wish she had been my professor because what she shared is that economics is actually about social justice. And it was so mm. fascinating. So I, I do agree with you. I, I didn't have a great experience with it. But I think that studying economics and taking courses that catch your interest today is the best way to prepare yourself for tomorrow. I was going to say the other piece of advice is if you're in college or, or first starting work is find a mentor, find someone who really sort of fires your imagination about a certain thing. I mean, I was kind of fortunate that way. I had a great set of teachers at Bowdoin involved in Asian studies, in particular a gentleman named Jack Langloy, who really kind of made Asian and Chinese history very much alive for me and, and really kind of fired my professional interest later on. Another gentleman named Willie Whiteside, Shinny Langloy, who taught me Chinese. And later on, as I said, John Tull, this Australian who was willing to put up with any mistakes I made. Whenever things went bad, the worst he would ever say was, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, and was very much a mentor. Try and find those people. And eventually when you get to that point where you're there, try and be a mentor yourself. I'm quite open to having people talk to me about what they want to do in this business because it's hard. I like giving advice. What can I say? Well, you give such wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Bruce, for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. You have such an interesting beat and you've had such a an interesting career. I, for one, have learned a huge amount and I certainly know that our listeners have as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.